Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are listening to the Nighttime Podcast. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to my multi-part series covering the death of and Justice for Sia Van Wyck. In the prior episode in this series, we met Sia's mom, Effie. During that conversation, we learned a lot about Sia's life, her family, and the effect Sia's death has had on her many loved ones. But what we didn't learn as much about was the actual circumstances surrounding what happened in the field that day. As you recall, Sia's mom, Effie, was back home in the United States when Sia was hit by a combine tractor in Nova Scotia. And as a result, Effie's understanding of what happened was secondhand. In this episode, we're going to get a much clearer but equally heartbreaking picture of the events surrounding seven-year-old Sia Van Wyck's tragic death. As you will soon hear, while Effie was back home in the United States, Sia and her dad Eric embarked on what should have been father and daughter fun in rural Nova Scotia. But clearly, and devastatingly so, that's not how it ended up. In this episode, Sia's dad, Eric Van Wyck, will join us to tell us about the special relationship he shares with Sia, their vacation to Nova Scotia, the horrific event that ended his daughter's life, and the living hell he's been going through ever since. Seven-year-old Sia Van Wyck was full of life and adventure. She was playing in a neighbor's hayfield in Clementsvale near Digby on July 19th when she was struck by a piece of farm machinery. Sia died hours later from her injuries. So before we get into the talk, Eric, why don't you tell me a bit about you and, and your life at, you know, present day in 2022? Um, well, I'm still kind of involved in the entertainment industry a little bit. Um, I work behind the scenes to, to promote the film industry um here in maine and then i kind of supplement with uh other jobs i do a lot of substitute teaching um and uh, volunteer wise do a lot of uh coaching um <clears throat> i basically you know i i mean my first priority always is is just looking after my son nico um i split time with effie um in terms of you know custody so when i have him i just kind of drill down on that and and that sort of what i occupy my time with and focus on him as much as i can and then on the times that i don't have him um i find that i've sort of structured my life in a way that i still spend a lot of time with his friends or other kids uh i mean as i as i kind of tell people uh, i i i'd like kids more than I like most adults just because there's no agenda and no filter and and I'm sure it's probably therapeutic for me on some level to to spend time with them even though they you know drive me nuts sometimes when <laughs> yeah. you know I'm trying to coach them or, or or in the classroom yeah I get that 100% and then the times that I'm not working I I basically run and go to the gym um and uh do as much physical activity as possible which keeps me from going insane. 
Yeah. And I, like you just listed off a lot of stuff that you do. So you sound like a really busy guy, but on top of that, you spend a considerable amount of time and effort and I'm sure emotion in pursuing accountability and justice in Sia's death. Where do you find time to, you know, to put energy and time towards that? Well, I don't, it's not an act of choice, you know, or a conscious choice, um, I should say. Um, it just, as I've said to people, you know, you lose a child, you don't suddenly stop being their parent. Um, you know, so whatever I can do for Sia ongoing is it's just kind of organically presents itself. And in, in this case, there is so much to do and so much to pursue um, for her and on behalf of her, not only to get justice, but to get to the absolute truth of what happened and to try and hold people accountable, including myself, you know? Um, so it's not, it's not really something I have to think about. It's just something that I'm always gonna be motivated by. Um, I'll just do whatever needs to be done. It's mm -hmm. just what you do mm -hmm. as a dad. Yeah. You know, speaking of life as a dad, Effie described you as a very hands-on father. And I, I can see that now as you're talking about uh, enjoying spending time with kids more than adults. And I can relate to that as well. But maybe just to give me an idea, tell me about your relationship with Zia and the way you two would spend time together if it was, you know, just her, you and her. <laughs> Well, we were <clears throat> just best buddies, you know. Um, sorry. It's, okay. um, it's interesting because I was I had so much trepidation before she was born, <clears throat> just about being a father, about being kind of ready in my life and settled in my career and, you know, all the other stuff you kind of go through as a, as a soon-to-be parent. And then, you know, she was born and, and it was like it just a, a switch went off. And, uh, you know, I just suddenly looked at her and I was like, wow, this this is what I was put on earth to do, to, to be this little girl's father, you know. Um, and, you know, right from the get go, I mean, I, I know it's <clears throat> it's easy to sort of dismiss me as biased, but she was just pure magic. You know, she she was everything that you could ever hope for like she was just you know like intelligent and smart and funny and tough and um you know uh, you know love to explore love to just um just find you know new ways to just kind of enjoy life and and, and look around she just was curious about everything um, she loved to be cuddled, but she also loved to be, you know, the break free and, and, and kind of do her own thing. And, and the early on, we spent a lot of time together because Effie would work from home and, and my flex, my schedule was fairly flexible and we didn't want to put her in, um, you know, daycare. Um, it just, it was like, why, why would you do that? You know? And, and I think both of us were conscious early on that, childhood goes by quickly you know you don't have so it was like we can make this work um so i spent a lot of my days kind of taking her to the park taking her on different adventures taking her to the aquarium taking her to the zoo taking her to the beach this was in la mm -hmm. 
and we just had a blast together. Like I, I, it was, you know, I remember talking to my friends and they were like, well, don't you get, you know, she get like you know some of them would complain or some of them were dads it's like ah it takes up so much time you don't get so much sleep and i was like how how could you possibly grumble about this like it's what else are you gonna do what are you gonna like go out at night with your friends you know what i mean they're like it's like why would you want to be anywhere else than with this beautiful child that that you can get to know and you can you know raise and 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 learn from and they learn from you and you know with Sia it was it was the one thing I was adamant about um was that you know the one thing I knew just from from growing up and, and being in the world is is that the world is can be pretty tough on women and can and can be pretty tough on girls as well in terms of like image as they grow older and and um just all the things that that messes with them so it was i i had this sort of agenda of like i i wanted to raise her in a way that she felt like there were no barriers do you know what i'm saying where it was like i can do anything that that uh, a boy can or when she gets older i can do anything that a man can um and that was sort of the way i always kind of structured our days where it was just like let her roam free let her explore let her you know, Effie did like to dress her up like a little doll at times, but there was never any of this sense like girls do this and boys do this. So she was, she was a bit of a a, a, a tomboy um, in that sense. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is she was such a complete sort of mix and balance of of all these different things that made her sort of her own kind of view. She that that's why she got along with everybody. You know, she truly like would take over a room and just got along with everybody she could talk to anybody she she was comfortable um and um we just had a really really strong bond i felt very lucky that i got to spend so much time It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. When we spoke to Effie last, uh, I heard a lot about the trip to Nova Scotia from her point of view. Again, she was back in the United States when you uh, and Sia were in Nova Scotia. And Effie kind of learned a lot about what was happening either through the short phone calls with, with Sia from, uh, from the United States or after 
what happened happened when she was come when Effie was coming into Nova Scotia. But I just want to ask from your point of view, the time in Nova Scotia with Sia. Could you tell me a bit about you know how she was spending her time? Like in in hearing you describe her, I imagine like farms and fields would be right up her alley for you know play and discovery. But maybe tell me a bit about your memories of of her times in Nova Scotia or her time in Nova Scotia. I felt very conflicted um, going up there. I felt um, it was something that had been talked about for a couple years, you know, that my, my, that Morgan and Doug um, were kept kind of uh, presenting, like, we really want to get the kids up here. Um, they should spend the time on the farm. It's beautiful up here. And so it was hard to make it work with all of us as a family, especially when we were in California. Mm -hmm. There was a time a couple of years prior where Nico and I were just going to go. And then it was, you know, we, but we were flying from LA. We had bought tickets and then there was this snowstorm and, 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 and Morgan and Doug um, would not pick us up at the airport. And I was worried about renting a car and it became a very contentious thing. And, 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 we stopped speaking for about, I'd say, a solid year after that. Um, and, and that should have been, you know, I think about that because it, there were so many red flags then um, that should have kind of alerted me and played into the decision. But then, you know, they started getting back in the fold and they, they kind of came down to visit us and it, it seemed like they wanted to have a more active presence in the kids' lives. So... But I had a lot of trepidation. I had a lot of trepidation because Effie wasn't going um, and that it was just I, I was excited by the prospect of a father daughter trip because it had been a while since he and I had done that. At the same time, I just had anxiety about the fact that it was just going to be the two of us and Effie wasn't there. And it's always nerve wracking splitting up the family mm -hmm. because we were, we were very close, the four of us, like whatever, um, you know, marital problems Effie and I were having at the time, it never affected the closeness of us as, as a family. We were very, very tight, you know, very um, loving, cohesive. So, I thought I had missed my first memory of that trip is I thought I had missed the, um, the ferry. And it was, and I, um, because I didn't, uh, <clears throat> uh factor in the time difference. Oh. Um, and I remember the, the first feeling I felt was relief. Like, Oh good. I can't go. Hmm. Um, cause Morgan had bought the tickets. Um, so, you know, I, I felt this obligation and it was like, oh, no, we could still make it. We should go. So on the drive up, um, she was asleep until about Bangor. And then we um, played different car games in the car. She quizzed me. Uh, she, we did play 20 questions. And I remember she she had learned about a lion's mane jellyfish and I had, had no idea what that was. And we were laughing so hard because I was like, what? You know, I asked like 45 questions. He's like, dad, you're not even close. And I'm like, I've been through every sea animal. And she's like a lion's mane jellyfish. And I'm like, what is that? <laughs> and uh, so we had a great, you know, so we had a really nice drive up and we had a nice ride on the ferry. And when we got there, it seemed like everything was okay. I started to relax a little bit. 
and the the big the big ticket day was going to be the next day which was the 19th we went up there on the 18th and the farm that we were going to was billed as sort of like almost like a petting zoo so yes it was very excited um because she thought she was going to see all these animals and her her experience with this type of thing is like i'm going to pet them and engage with them you know both my kids love 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 animals um and love being around them so the first night was okay. Um, she seemed excited to be there. But I could tell that she, you know, was probably putting on a little bit of a brave face, just having mom at home, like, you know, as close as we are. It's different not having mom around. Um, she didn't really say anything, but, you know, you you always know. So I wanted to make it, you know, as as comfortable for her as I could. And Morgan is not you know, the warmest of people, um, even though she tried in her own way, but she put Sia to bed that night and Sia seemed okay. And she seemed comfortable. So it was like, all right, this is, it, it should be an okay trip. I remember reporting to Effie, like she's okay. I'm in the next, I'm in the room next to hers. You know, I know exactly where she is. I can see her. And then we got up the next day and we went to the farm and you know, that's, that's where um, there were issues. And when I say issues, I mean, um, things that would later factor into how Morgan described the day to the police. Um, we went to this farm. And it was like a it was like a farm share that uh, and I've since been back there, I went there a few months ago. Um, and, and, and it, it was like a farm share that Morgan and Doug kind of wanted to show off and they had cows and they had pigs and um, chickens, but none of them were really out. It wasn't, in other words, it wasn't set up. It was like two people that have this uh, farm share where they have animals, but it wasn't kid friendly in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sia was constantly being told, you know, like the cows were like wild. They're the, they're the kind that had like horns on them. Um, the pigs were enclosed in a pen. Like she, she was constantly be told, stay away, stay away. Don't do that. Go away from there. So by the end of it, she was frustrated. Um, and I have a picture of her face, you know, like looking just sort of frustrated, kind of like, you know, what the fuck am I doing here? Um, and that was sort of the big ticket item. And I, I, in retrospect, I don't think fully appreciated of, how disappointing that must have been to her because I was still, you know, constantly worried about the dynamic breaking down. We're still up there for two days. Morgan can be very volatile. Um, the, the, the landscape can suddenly change. And it's like, I don't want to make the next two days. Like one thing could set her off, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and again, all of these things, it's like, you know, now I replay it over and over in my mind. It's like, we never should have gone up there. There was no need, like, it's clearly a trip to placate, you know, her quote unquote grandparents who I'll never speak to again. Nico will never have any contact with. Like, it, there was, it, it was just such an ill-advised decision on my part to even, it's like, no, you want to see your granddaughter, you come to Maine, we're not going up there. But I didn't know. I didn't sort of know what the, like, I knew what it was built like. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know what the reality was. So 
but I knew enough that she was disappointed. And when we got back for lunch, you know, Morgan and Doug were like already exhausted by the day. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to take C out and do something fun. So then we went on this trail behind uh, the house that goes to this creek for two or three miles. We took the dog and she had a great time doing that. We ran around, she's playing in the creek. I've got videos. And, and then we went to Ravenhaven, uh, which is a beach, a local beach, about 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes away from the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and so before we left, uh, Morgan had said, you know, be back by 630 um, because that's when dinner will be ready. And so I'm keeping an eye on the time, you know, which again, in retrospect, I wish I hadn't, obviously, um, because she was having so much fun at Ravenhaven. So we went. So the afternoon, that afternoon, C and I spent together and it was a great afternoon. We had a we had a great afternoon, just two of us, like, just so fun. She was so happy. I felt like, you know, I'm turning this day around. This is what I need to do is to turn this day around and, 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 and make it fun for her. And, and that's what we did, you know. And we just we went on that hike and then we went to the beach and we swam out to this rock, which I've, which I've gone back and swam out to a few times. And she climbed on the rock and, and she had a great time, you know. We had so much fun. And then she met this little girl. And then I'm looking at the time and I'm like, we got to get back for dinner. And uh, again, starting to feel that anxiety if we get back too late, you know. Um, and, and I should have just said, fuck it and let her play with this girl. She went and introduced you know, this girl her age, the first kid she, of her age that she's met. And um, so we got in the car, we listened to one of her favorite songs. I would always do this thing where I'd, you know, reach back and she'd give me a high five. We drove back to the house, uh, Morgan and Doug's house. <clears throat> and when we pulled in the driveway, I saw out of the corner of my eye, I saw this tractor going around or coming up the road. And I think he had the mower with it and he may have started circling, but I didn't really, I thought, okay, that's, that's, loud but it's kind of a way i didn't put two and two together Mm -hmm. and i went in the house with sia doug was outside i saw him and morgan was inside dinner wasn't ready yet and immediately sia said can i take the dog out and I had this email that I had been meaning to answer for a couple of days. My laptop was upstairs. I had a couple of texts and I just, you know, it's a moment that I just replay over and over. Um, uh, I said, uh, she's like, I want, I think she said something like, I want to take the dog outside. And Morgan was like, Oh, well, okay. But kind of looked at me and I was like, all right, we'll stick close. And, the way that house is situated, Morgan was in the kitchen and it, 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 there's a, a, a big window that opens out to the back. And I thought C was immediately going to that back trail, which was away from that side piece of property <clears throat> where the tractor was. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, I was thinking about the road mm-hmm. um, and Doug was covering the road. He was he was up the he was in full view of where the road was and there was no reason for her to go there. So she runs out the door with the dog 
um, I mean, this is all within like 30 seconds. I'm like, I'm going to go upstairs and answer this email. And I'm kind of thinking Morgan has got, you know, an eye on her. But I don't say specifically to her, keep an eye on her. I'm just mm -hmm. thinking she's going to go out the back with the dog. I'm not really thinking. It's just pure one of those parental. I, I, actually, I don't want to minimize it. Just pure complacency. Mm -hmm. Just like she's okay. She's going out the back. She's not, you know. And again, I'm not really thinking about the tractor. I'm more thinking about the road. So then I go upstairs and I start to answer this email. And I'm probably there maybe five or 10 minutes. It might've been longer, but the house is peaceful. So I know that everyone is outside and I figure Morgan's outside playing with Sia or playing with the dog. Like both in my mind, as I'm sitting there, again, it's so etched in my memory because I just remembered the window that's facing the road and the breeze blowing the curtain and just the peacefulness in the room and hearing voices outside and thinking, you know, I've had her the whole afternoon. Morgan and Doug are outside playing with her. They'll let me know when dinner's ready. Everything is covered. I'm finishing this email. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing I know, Morgan's at the doorway. She's got this look on her face and she's like, Eric, I have, something to tell you you need to come downstairs and and i thought that she was she looked so kind of she wasn't crying she was sort of looked it almost looked like she was trying to play a joke like and i burned dinner you know like i i i i can't explain it it, it was just it was so sort of like um i need to because she has a sense of humor something like that sometimes where she where she she you know, was, uh, <clears throat> I can't explain it, but it's like she she she's like, I have something very serious to tell you. And then, you know, follows it uh, with something ridiculous. So I thought that's what was coming. And then and then she said the words, there's been an accident. And as soon as she said that, I said, where's Sia? And I ran downstairs and I run out the door. There's a fucking ambulance there and people and my daughter on a stretcher with her leg missing, moaning and bleeding, huge gash on the side of her head. Just... God, she started screaming. No. And then somewhere in the back of my mind, it's like, she's still alive. Go save her. This is what, this is the reality now. You don't fucking put your game face on and go save her. So that's what I did. I immediately rush to the hospital and called Effie somewhere along the way and she was still alive and they were going to bring her to IWK in, in Halifax and and I was like I, I, I'm going to learn as much information as possible and 
get as many opinions as possible and figure out how to keep her alive. And that's essentially what I did. I'm Aaron Habel of Generation Y, and with me is Jack Luna of Dark Topic. We'd like to introduce you to Marooned, a new podcast that's sure to capture your attention. Tales of the catastrophically lost are what we have to offer. Hikers swallowed by the woods. Explorers discovering nothing but destitution. True crime calamity. Oddities of harrowing human experience. It's a museum of misadventure. So pack a lunch. Subscribe to Marooned wherever you find podcasts. We are waiting. Please hurry. Thank you. During my conversation with Effie, she talked a lot about the early response from RCMP and in her reaction to getting the news that this was deemed to just be some kind of like freak accident. Do you recall the time where, where you were told as, as dad, like, you know, we looked into it and there was, you know, this was not criminal in nature. Like, do you remember getting that news at one point? Yeah, I mean, I remember everything very clearly. And I think my own journey with it is what helps me now feel confident that a crime was committed. Mm. Because, you know, I was very slow to respond to any of that. I blamed myself. Um, I, you know, was like, I was the one that let her go out there. Um, it was on my watch. I used to literally say to my kids, I'm not lying about this. I would, I would always say to them, what's my job? And they would say to keep us safe. And I said that to them over and over and over. Um, and so I didn't keep her safe. You know, I, I failed at the one job, the only job that I have in this life, you know, I've, I failed at and failed so completely. So I really blamed myself and um, I would later learn that she was most likely struck within four or five minutes, maybe even less time of me going upstairs, that it happened relatively quickly and then the sequence of events to get, you know, the ambulance. And so my first I remember it was actually the priest when we were driving down. So there were a couple of things that kind of stood out. You know, I didn't really want to hear or need to hear and what, certainly wasn't looking to scapegoat anyone. Mm -hmm. um, even Morgan and Doug, you know, Effie never liked them for good reason. Um, she was, uh, you know, already blaming them. Um, she had told Morgan specifically, keep an eye on her. She felt like Morgan didn't listen to that. And then the, it was the priest who knew Sia. And when we were driving down to Sia's funeral, he said, you know, I keep thinking about, he's like, I'm not looking. And this is a gentle guy. You know, he's not a guy that goes looking for trouble. He said, I keep thinking about the farmer. It just doesn't make sense that he wouldn't see her. And so that planted a little bit of a seed, like I should follow up on this. So when I spoke to Sergeant Terry Miller, who oversaw the investigation, um, I asked him, I said, um, and by the way, nobody had interviewed me. He hadn't really interviewed me. 
he but he told me that that you know essentially that just looks like a, an accident in fact he characterized it by the 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 phrase just an insane phrase uh he said death by misadventure that's what i what i would call it that's that's how sergeant terry miller the rcmp um that was his <laughs> so i i asked him i said how well do you know this this farmer and he said he immediately got defensive and he said why are you asking that and i said well is he known in the community is he are you friends with him do you know much about him and he was like oh we've had contact with him um but I, again i'm not sure why you're asking and i said well he and this was less than a week after sia had died and i said well he ran over my daughter and i just think it's important like he like who is this guy do you know and 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 uh he hung up on me like literally hung up on me. And so that I remember going over to Effie right after that conversation and saying, okay, maybe there's more to this story. Mm -hmm. um, and Effie was already, Effie was already putting the feelers out, getting the police report. She was very motivated to immediately. And I, I will say you know, fully admit that there was a part of me that was also like, because I know what Effie can be like at times, I was married to her, you know, I probably dismissed it as well as, you know, you're looking to scapegoat, you're looking to lay blame in a situation. And I kept telling her, this is my fault, you know, like you can lay it at the feet of other people, this is on me. Um, so she then was you know needed to sue for the police report i told her if you she said i might need to name you in the suit i said you do whatever i said if you want to press charges against me like press charges against me like i i will whatever responsibility i can take for this whatever way i'm found criminally liable i'm ready you know what i mean like it's other than being Nico's father and having to be here for Nico, like my life is over. Do you know what I mean? And in some ways, I I also felt like <clears throat> maybe it's better that I'm not around. Like I felt like a piece of shit as a father, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was like, look, you can raise him. <laughs> Your family can raise him. Cousins can raise him. He's got all these loving people. Clearly, I don't measure up. I may, and I, you know, I shouldn't be around. And so... I really mostly stayed out of that, um, the, the, the civil suit or really anything to do with that for quite a while. Um, and in the back of my mind was that conversation with Miller. But even then, I was just like, ah, you know. So then I reached out to Morgan and Doug and I said, you know, I, I'd like to talk to the farmer at least. And they said, well, that's not a good idea. He's hitting the bottle pretty hard. And I think I was a little terse with them. And at that point, you know, the division was growing and I was like, well, you know, he, but he, the fact is he still ran over Sia and he hasn't reached out to us. So it wasn't until the following year, I, you know, I mean, I was just crawling through the day, basically just getting up and just trying to, and then, you know, in the middle of all that, Effie and I were getting a divorce as well. So it was just... It was an extremely, extremely dark time. Um, 
and I joined this uh, uh, group called uh, Compassionate Friends, um, which uh, helps parents that have lost their their children, and uh, and also uh, people who have lost their siblings. And I remember I was talking to this other couple who had had a similar thing where their daughter was run over by somebody, and they were they they were at odds because the dad kept trying to get in contact with the driver hmm. and uh the wife was like why can't he just let it go why can't he just let it go and then and and i remember saying to them look if i hit somebody or ran over somebody's child whether it was my fault or not you better believe i'd be on my hands and knees begging for their forgiveness and contacting them and saying what can i do how can i I, I, I want to be, I want to help you. And as I'm saying this, I'm like, what the fuck am I talking about? Like, I have never heard from Roland Potter. And so that's what made me say, I, I need to take a trip up there and I need to um, meet this guy. If he's not going to contact me, then I'm going to contact him and I'm going to show up. And that's when I went up in the fall of 2018. And that's when I started to realize, oh, there's a whole lot more to the story. And there is definitely more blame to go around than just me. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what kicked it off. Mm -hmm. This trip uh, that you take to Nova Scotia 2018-ish is... It is, is it at this time that you actually first meet him? Because I know you had at least one interaction with him yes. that didn't go well. Can, tell me about that. Like just the idea of trying to meet this guy, given what you what you know and what has happened and the unanswered questions you have and the emotion you have, I can't imagine how that interaction and that meeting would have happened. Can you tell me about it? Well, I knew enough to be somewhat cautious about it because I had been told by Morgan and Doug that, that he was not in a great way and that he was, and you know, when they had talked about him before, this is when Sia was alive, they'd said, oh, you know, they almost like talked about him in kind of cartoonish terms, like, oh, he gets a bit cranky sometimes. And, you know, he has his disputes with people, but he's harmless. You know, they sort of paid him as this like wacky old codger that, you know, lives down the end of the road. And, but so I, I, you know, I didn't really know what I'd find. I knew that maybe he would not, um, he'd be reluctant to talk to me, but I was at least going to show up at his door and say, hey, you know, look me in the eye, I'm here. Um, you know, no different than maybe a reporter would or something. It's very hard to like. So I didn't know where his house was. I thought that his house was Brandy Parker's house, who because the field is right behind her house. Mm -hmm. Roland Potter actually lives across the street. Hmm. And it's important to know that because that whole property dispute is because Brandy's yard abuts the field where Sia was killed. So that's that's what that whole property dispute is like exactly where that property line is. Yeah, which and, is and just for people who um, may not get the names of the people, the, the property dispute that you're describing is um, Potter has now made news for somewhere between attacking and intimidating a neighbor with his tractor as a result of, the, of a property dispute. Is this the area you're talking about? Is y this yes. Yeah. He, he, um, I've come to find out that he 
it's my opinion that the only thing that this guy cares about is his land. Yeah, his um, property. Because this feud that he's having with this other neighbor, um, yeah. that's very ugly. Like, I've seen the videos of him and the tractor digging up, you know, the mm -hmm. looks like he's digging up their lawn. Everyone's screaming and shouting. The tractor engine is revving. The field that he's protecting or disputing, is that the field that Sia was killed in? Yes, that's the field where Sia was. I mean, Sia died as a result of her injuries in the hospital, mm -hmm. but that's the field where she was hit. Yeah. Okay. That's the field. So, so I thought that Brandy's house <clears throat> was actually Potter's house. So I went, um, knocked on the door. No one was there. I waited. Eventually, Brandy rolled in. I thought that was his daughter. And so I said, you know, I'm looking for your father. She's like, what are you talking about? So I start talking to her and she immediately is like, what, what have you heard about this guy? Like, and I said, well, you know, and I kind of told her and she started to fill me and she said, no, uh, you know, this, uh, he's, a, he's a bad man, you know, and he's, um, he, uh, He's got a, a, a long history of, of violence in this community and antagonism. And she outlined some of the property dispute. And, and uh, she started to tell me a lot about a lot of things that had been happening in the community, some which had to do with him, some which had to do with law enforcement. But just, you know. And this is all news to you at this point. This is all news to me. Wow. Okay. So uh, and then she points out that he lives across the street. And so, um, so then I attempted to go across the street and he, his nephew came out, um, there's a guy named Charlie and Potter came out of the house with a baseball bat. So that was sort of my first time kind of setting eyes on him. So Charlie gets in my face, starts screaming at me, trying to intimidate me. And, uh, so there's a little pushing and shoving and, um, and then he calms down and he comes across the street and starts to show me the equipment and the mower that ran over Sia. And I taped all this, I have recordings of all this and, and, um, uh, and Potter never comes out. And then eventually, um, Viv Vivian, who's, uh, Potter's wife shows up and, she explains to me what she remembers from that day. She tells me that he, she heard Sia scream from the house, um, uh, which is another thing that's never really sort of followed up on by anybody because it's, if she, she said she had the TV on and she heard Sia scream from the house. So if she heard Sia scream from the house across the street, mm -hmm. how is it that Potter in that tractor didn't didn't hear it at all right mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense so um so in the course of that conversation she says you know let me talk to him come by the house the next day i'll arrange for you to, i'll arrange for him to sit down with you and i'll calm him down and you can come by the house and talk to him and i said okay um so i called the next morning just to confirm she, uh, I got her voicemail. She never answered. I left a message. I said, I'm still coming by at noon. Um, and then I show up at his house at noon. As I drive up the driveway, 
they'll clearly they're expecting me because there's like three guys that are standing there with their arms folded. So I'm thinking, no oh, fuck, you know, because one thing I had been told is that, you know, he had a house full of guns. Um, and I, he was nowhere to be seen. He was inside the house. So I, I, you know, there was a part of me that was like, turn the car around and get out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there was another part of me, obviously, that, you know, it was like, you know, like you said, like, I, I have no choice. This is, this is, this is what I do now. And I need to know, and I need to do this for Sia. So um, I set the recording on my phone, got out of the car, you know, so I could have an audio recording just in case something went down. At mm-hmm. least there's some evidence of it somewhere. And I asked for, for Potter and the guy said, just a second. And, and next thing you know, he comes flying out of the house, screaming at the top of his lungs and takes a swing at me. And so I just instinctively blocked the punch, a counter punch. I'm a lefty. So it's great because, uh, you know, it was actually a perfect vantage point to do that. He's swinging with his right. I step to the left, block it, hit with my, he's wide open. Um, and then he fell back and went scrambling inside. And then I thought I was going to get jumped by the other three. So I just sort of scooted back a little bit to kind of triangulate. Nobody does anything. Then I'm thinking he's going to come out of the house shooting, mm-hmm. which he doesn't. And then it just dawned on me, these people are fucking cowards. Like they are fucking cowards. And as much as, you know, I've talked to people in that community that are afraid of these guys, they're nothing. They are the classic bully in which they intimidate through fear. But when push comes to shove and when you press them, there's nothing. And sure enough, you know, I stayed probably a good three or four minutes. Vivian let me know that the police had been called. And I thought, well, that probably won't go well. So I left. Um, and then later I found out that they pressed charges. And not only did they press charges, but they put in the, according to the police report, they left out the four of the people that were there. And in their version, I just showed up at the house and started attacking Roland, which is, you know, not what happened. But I did get thrown in jail um, a few months later. And then, you know, eventually the the, the uh, case got dropped because they had the audio recording. And I was like, you know, yeah, put him on the stand and, and uh, James will absolutely destroy him. So that was my first introduction and to, to him. And so then when I went back, you know, I came back to Maine, I was absolutely convinced, okay, nothing I've been told about this guy up to that point is true he's clearly there's something fucking wrong with him mm-hmm. um and he's clearly hiding something mm-hmm. um and so that's when i really started to lean into it and say you know maybe effie's been right all along about this and and maybe i need to step back from my own guilt it doesn't negate the guilt that i feel at all but that doesn't mean that a crime wasn't committed. And if you're going to find me responsible, which you should, 
then you definitely need to find this guy responsible who knew that she was in harm's way, clearly. So that's, that's when I started to get more bullish about the case. Hello, listeners. Sorry to pull you out of the episode like this, but I want to take a moment and remind you of the benefits of a nighttime premium feed subscription. First of all, I release the episodes ad-free and two days early on the premium feed, which gives you the show quicker and a lot less painfully. Secondly, I maintain a full back catalog of nighttime episodes and countless hours of bonus content only on the premium feed. So to give you more of the show than any sane person would probably even want to listen to. And the third thing, premium feed subscribers who do so annually get a discounted rate and receive a free swag pack by mail. Who doesn't love mail? And lastly, but hopefully most importantly, the premium feed will fund the creation of the show. My mics, my laptop, the little lights on my desk, it's all paid for by the combined efforts of the premium feed subscribers. So if any of this sounds good to you, for about the price of a cup of coffee, you can go premium right now at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. I want to thank you for considering it. Now, let's get back to the episode. At this point, at the point that this all happens, the official or the first investigation had already been concluded that, you know, there was no criminal wrongdoing. When is it that Tom, that you turned to Tom Martin? And for people listening from Nova Scotia, they likely know his name because he's a well-respected former homicide detective who's retired, turned to a private investigator. So he's well-known in Nova Scotia. So to get him on board would definitely put a um, a feather in the cap of getting to the truth uh, from your side. When, when do you turn to him? Well, Effie had been, she'd been actively trying to get the complete police report, mm-hmm. which we didn't get until two months later, December of that year. Um, and in the meantime, she had started to speak to a criminal lawyer and I was on that call as well, which is James Giacomantonio. Mm-hmm. So James was actually the one who brought Tom in. Okay. And James was initially skeptical because it's it's at if if you look at this case just sort of broad strokes, there's there's not a lot there, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like, well, accident, kind of crazy kooky farmer. She shouldn't have been in the field. It's tragic, but what's the problem you know these parents need to let it go right so he understandably was also you know he's very polite and respectful but you know wasn't convinced that there was a there there and said i i i need time to review the report i need time to go over it um i don't want to get caught in something that's just again where we're going around in circles Mm -hmm. looking for an answer that is never really going to come then he went through the report started to see the red flags also took into account my interactions and then he i don't remember the exact time that tom martin was brought in but he he turned it over to martin who started looking at it and said yeah this doesn't add up you know and could see it through an investigative standpoint of just off the top of my head here are seven things that they didn't do mm-hmm. uh and and completely missed mm-hmm. 
So, so the way it would have worked is Tom Martin would have taken all the information that was available at that point, like the prior police reports and interview transcripts and whatnot. He would use that as the basis to form his own investigation. And I believe the end result is he provides you and your lawyer with his report of, you know, what, what went wrong and what he thinks may have happened. Am I kind of getting sort of the overall kind of process of, of, of that correctly? Well, the first thing he did, to my recollection, is he wrote a report on the police report itself. Mm -hmm. And then he, um, so that was the first step. Like, mm -hmm. here are all the things, here are all the red flags, here are all the things that they missed. Mm -hmm. And then the second step was to do his own analysis, mm -hmm. equivocal analysis of everything, all the evidence, interviews that should have been done, site tests that should have been done. Uh, model testing that should have been done, um, following up on the parts, machine, you know, basically the... the Everything that should a, have been done initially. A complete investigation, yes. And then he did that. So he prepared two or three reports. The first was on the police report itself. And then the second was the actual investigation that should have taken place. Wow. Uh, and how long does, like, even roughly, how long is it from you getting in, in contact with Tom Martin through your lawyer to you getting these reports that really show you, you know, what should have been done and what had it been done correctly, what it would have revealed. Like roughly how long did that all take? It took the better part of a year. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say six or seven months, maybe, you know, um, I can't remember the exact date mm -hmm. that he, um, sent it to us, but then, you know, we had to read through it. It's 1100 pages. Mm -hmm. Took a while. Um, hard to read through, obviously. But um, once we did read through it, then I really had a clear picture of, oh, this goes way beyond conjecture now or my own personal interaction. This is hard evidence. Mm -hmm. Um and pretty irrefutable evidence. Um, aside from the missteps and, and the drinking and the breathalyzing, the sight tests to me, the two sight tests, one in terms of the shirt and the vantage point and, and all the ways, uh, the painstaking sight tests that he put in terms of getting the same shirt, matching the daylight, the, sight, you know, the height of the hay, um, sitting in the tractor, the different positions, that but also the model testing he did where he analyzed you know her wounds and and the holes on the ground and the way she was found and the way she was positioned and essentially determined that she would have been standing up right up to the point that the mower ran her over those two things alone are in my mind game-changing not to mention the interview that you know you then have with Potter, where he admits that he saw her for for far longer. Um, but just knowing, you know, being able to actually disprove that he couldn't see her is something that you know I I I don't understand why. Um, the RCMP or Nova Scotia PPS doesn't completely reverse mm -hmm. course. Yeah. And w when I first heard Sia's story, the, the way I understood it was 
she uh, he had alleged that she was maybe hiding or ducking down in what I assumed to be tall grass and not visible. But when I saw Merton's report, I was shocked at you know that I wouldn't even consider that tall grass. It's like an overgrown lawn almost is what it looked like. Yeah, it was not tall grass. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like seeing his report and picturing someone her size dressed the way she was. It's you would need you'd literally need to have your eyes closed to not see someone in front of your tractor as that was happening. Uh, other than like when you get the report, you, you kind of listed off a few things there that were the ones that stood out to or the factors that stood out to you to be um, to show that there was some wrongdoing. Can you think of anything else other than the the transcript of the interview that you read and then the site uh, report and, and modeling? Is there any other pieces in there that you want to highlight that really stand out as you know this this shows something happened oh yeah um obviously the admission of drinking before and after um which which martin points out that is a common tactic that alcoholics use Mm -hmm. to to disguise the fact that they've been drinking the fact that he was flying around that field um that he you know tom martin talks about uh, you know his own words in the report i'm going to mow that piece in a jiffy it'll take about 10 minutes and then, and then Martin basically extrapolates what that would mean a time period of, you know, he was basically playing the finish by the time the hot dogs were ready. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a huge field, but it's not small enough to do in 10 minutes unless you are absolutely just pedal to the metal. Mm-hmm. Um, to prove crim neg, it's, it's, it's uh, a wanton or reckless disregard of others. So... There are so many things that he did in that 10 minute span, each individually on their own, which were wanton and reckless, Mm -hmm. drinking and operating the equipment, going at a top speed, knowing that she was in the field and not stopping, being able to clearly see her and still not stopping. And and this is where it gets into, uh, well, I'll just say to answer your question, the, uh, the other thing Tom Martin talks about is also the fact that he fled the scene, you know, something that the RCMP um, uh, really doesn't, um, you know, follow up on or really even kind of drill down on. Like, like he essentially found my daughter dismembered and bleeding with horrific injuries and said, go tell your husband and then drove his tractor home, which again, tractor would be a piece of evidence, right? And basically got the fuck out of there and then tells the RCMP, I killed this little girl. So there are so many things in that moment that the RCMP that, that again, on their own, people get arrested for, for less. I'm just outlining the, the, the big, the big things. Of course. Um, So Goulding, so when they train you to be a pol- police officer, you have to, when you first show up at the scene, you are supposed to just take statements. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to ask any leading questions. You're supposed to just take notes and then make your determination later on, right? Almost immediately, Goulding says in the police, and, and, and this is in the interview and in his own report, he says, well, it was an accident. There was nothing you could do. He makes his determination within minutes of showing up there. Mm-hmm. This is another huge, crucial error that mm-hmm. um, 
more or less closes our case or, or, or walls us off from doing anything because the undoing of that and trying to get a case reopened, as you probably know, is such a monumental task. So now, as far as the where we get into the the, the, the sticky area and Tom's determination that um, Sia was worried about the dog and she had lost um, because there's a whole part of her coming back to the door. Mm -hmm. So there's, a, there's the whole part which we kind of skipped over um, in terms of while I was up in the room of what was happening downstairs. Mm -hmm. And according to Morgan, Sia came back to the door and said, I'm fine, I'm fine, and then ran back out. And then suddenly Morgan was like, oh, wait a second, Potter's doing the field. Is everything okay? Morgan goes outside of the house. And this is another thing I'll never understand. And again, as much responsibility as I feel, but as a parent, if I'd gone out and I'm suddenly aware of the tractor and the danger and the mower, and I don't see my granddaughter anywhere, you better believe I'm going to keep walking around mm -hmm. until I get eyes on her. Mm -hmm. And she assumed that she was in the hammock, which was blocked by a shed. Had she actually, you know, again, taken those few steps, verified whether she was in the hammock or not, looked around, called out her name, anything, she might have saved Sia's life. Mm -hmm. You never know. So, so there's this whole thing where Sia comes back to the door. Morgan goes out, goes, can't see her. Oh, well, go back in, make dinner. Um, what Tom thinks happened is that she was saying, I need to find, I need to find, I find, I find, uh, meaning looking for the dog, that that's what, because okay. again, there was this whole notion, another uh, circling back to what we were saying earlier, another big amount of damage that Morgan did to this case was talking about how troubled Sia was that morning. And so painting this picture of this little girl who's, troubled and her parents are going through this, you know, uh, potentially a divorce and marital problems. And, and, you know, then she's troubled at, at the, uh, at the barn. And so maybe she just kind of ran into the field because she's, you know, uh, just feeling reckless. And so she's going to go into this field with this loud, noisy mark. Well, look, mm -hmm. she's not, she's very aware of a danger that would exist. And moreover, the troubled look that Morgan saw was in direct response to the fact that you painted this fucking utopian, you know, petting zoo that never materialized. Mm -hmm. And basically she was told for the better part of an hour and a half, don't touch that. Don't go there. Stay away from there. Don't like she's frustrated as mm -hmm. any little girl would be. It's mm -hmm. like, I, I, I want, I just want to run around and be with these animals and pet them. And, and, and so, so a lot was made out of that. Um, so if you if you factor in all these things why she was in that field to me it makes the most sense that she was worried about the dog but the other part of it is how did she still end up in harm's way and this is the thing that you know tom martin can only go so far to speculate about because he has to stick to the evidence and what can be proven right mm -hmm. so if you look at that report i feel like there, there, there is no question that tom and james made a very successful case over uh, uh, uh for criminal negligence wanton mm -hmm. or disregard of human life he knew mm -hmm. that she was in danger he did not stop 
there were a number of pieces um, that he leaned into that reckless behavior and has since and before always exhibited that kind of behavior when it comes to farm equipment, driving people, his animals, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But for me, knowing what's gone on with the Parkers and in that property dispute, I really do. It's like, I don't believe that he got up that morning to kill somebody. I do believe he was a ticking time bomb. I do believe if it wasn't her, it might've been someone else. Mm -hmm. But I think when he gets on that field, um, anybody steps foot on it or messes with his routine, he just sees red. And that's the X factor that is so hard to prove, even though it seems so obvious to me. Especially in if other you words, watch the videos of him dealing If with you it. watch the videos and you study his case history, mm -hmm. um, absolutely, here's a guy who part of that wanton or dis reckless disregard is because he cannot control himself. He does not have the capacity to control his anger. You're looking at a guy who has been locked up numerous times since um, because of making threats. Right now, he's under a peace bond not to go over on Brandy's property. You can get arrested if you violate that peace bond. But what does that tell you about his psychology? Mm -hmm. He cannot stop himself. Mm -hmm. He can't control his anger. Mm -hmm. So you're telling me that there is no possibility that he saw, you know, and it's not like I'm, my daughter, I, again, I feel confident about saying this because I've heard her described in, in this way by members of his family, no different than an animal to him. Mm -hmm. So it was literally like, what the fuck is she doing on my land? I'm going to keep going. She better get out of my way. And if she doesn't, oh, well. That's really what I thought was going on in his mind. And I don't believe for a second that he didn't know he had hit her. I think he knew. I think he kept going, went, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, came back to her body again and was like, I need to do something. I need to call attention to this and then ran home. Those are the actions of a guilty man. Mm -hmm. You tell me how that's not a crime. You know, and you at this point, you have the report to prove it. And Tom Martin's report, I, I've read through it myself. It is um, irrefutable, ba yeah. irrefutable, backed up. He's done. He shows his math. And I think uh, anything other than a complete reinvestigation of the case seems like it would be, you know, the, the wrong course of action. What What is it that you're you're hoping for at this point? Like you, you have the, the information to back you up for criminal negligence. What is it you're advocating for? Well, I I want the RCMP to accept responsibility um, for their mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, Jay Goulding, I've reached out to him numerous times. He will not talk to me. Mm -hmm. um, he has asked... Um, his uh, HR department and local police to, 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 to speak to me, um, to ask me to stop communicating with them. That doesn't strike me as a guy that feels proud of his work. Mm -hmm. You're a police officer. I mean, suck it up. Do you know what I mean? I get that it's not easy to talk to a father who has lost his daughter, 
but to go that way about it like you got no backbone Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like i i i have a lot of respect for the police i have a lot of friends who are police officers i've run it by a few of them i don't know anybody who would behave that way so the first thing would be to get um rcmp to take ownership of the fact that they fucked the dog in this case and to do what they can to reopen it um not holding my breath but if they did that then it would give us a chance of getting this prosecuted in a court getting this evidence out there and putting roland potter behind bars you know where he clearly belongs um for this and for so many other things um and you know at this point i imagine he after after this latest case that the, the backhoe incident i'm sure he feels untouchable you know um you know as far as i'm concerned i'm not going to stop until i'm just not going to stop i'm not going to stop until he's behind bars and i'm not going to stop until that the truth is out there and 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 recognized you know you talked a lot early on about um the period just after sia's death with blaming yourself and being you know down in the in this hole um of blame and guilt and regret and all these things seeing this report and better understanding what potter did and didn't do does that change the way you feel inside at all like does that help in any way with you understanding you know your role in this and what had happened no because i um I went back to the farm share where the where the you know the 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 owner of that farm well you know i give him credit for letting me kind of roam the property and go back to where sia was but then he proceeds to tell me about how he you know believes in reincarnation and and he he tells me that he turned to you know morgan that day and said this little girl is going to die you know, uh, he's telling me all this, that he had this sense that 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 she was going to die and was courting death, which, of course, influenced, you know, Morgan, who that was then the phrase that she used with the police. You know, talking to Brandy, I had coffee with Brandy. She started telling me some other things about the community, um, just the kind of stuff that's gone on, the 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 some abuse that's happened towards children in years past in years past. It just all of it was like I brought my little girl into a, a den of wolves. You know, that's that's what I left with. It, it it it's I never should have brought her up to this horrible place. And on the surface, you know, you have this picturesque town that's that's you know this pastoral community and and you know the bear river and clements fail and farmland and like you know uh organic uh you know coffee shops and you know all the things that people i'm sure they get out of the city and they escape to and they they look around and they think uh look at this you know this wonderful place and and uh so progressive and you know all the things that we want to you know uh middle class parents with kids want to tell ourselves but underneath you know it's just kind of this seedy side there's a lot of drugs in that community there's corruption there's you know and then you know just people are people it's like a system is only as good as you know the uh, 
or, or a community is only as good as the system and administration that supports it mm -hmm. and people are flawed. And so, um, you know, you don't have the best trained officers going out there to that detachment in Annapolis Royal. So it, I, I understand what you're asking. It, there are times when, when I have this realization that it wasn't solely my actions that led to her getting killed, but it doesn't comfort me, you know? I mean, it doesn't, it's not gonna bring her back. Um, it doesn't, it was still my job to protect her. And in some ways I feel so much worse now because like I said, had I done my research or put in a little time of figuring out had I trusted my gut, mm. you know, which was, I never wanted to bring her up there. I did it out of pressure and I should have trusted that. And I should have trusted Effie's gut. And, and in that sense, that's where our differences, our marital differences, I think played a part because it was like, I did, you know, I, I wanted to show her probably in some way, no, we can make this work, you know, and, and let's find a peaceful, instead of always kind of shutting it down, like, you know, her, you know, Morgan and Doug are trying to, they're trying to turn a corner. So let's give them a chance instead of just saying, you know, look, my family is, shouldn't be involved in our children's lives. Let's just stick with your family who we know uh, is exactly where she needs to be. And that, that was a, I, I don't know if Effie talked about it, but that was a pull that, that I constantly felt. And I should have, I should have just cut the cord years ago instead of trusting, you know, whatever picture was painted for me. So yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make it any easier, but I'm grateful that I know more of the truth, you know, it's the only thing that I can do. I want to thank you for joining Eric and I in our conversation. After producing over 250 episodes of Nighttime, this conversation has to have been one of the hardest for me personally. Being a dad myself, hearing Eric describe the good times with Sia, I could so clearly relate. I can't imagine how his situation must feel, far from it. But I can appreciate his desire for justice for his daughter. As you can probably understand by this point in the series, the man operating the tractor, Mr. Potter, is quite the controversial character. His behavior, both during and after Sia's death, have been discussed during these episodes, but we've only scratched the surface so far. So let me call back to the beginning of the first episode in the series. Remember I described that video showing a man on a bit of a rampage in a tractor tearing up a lawn? Well, Nova Scotia court records, a series of YouTube and TikTok videos, and a current court-ordered peace bond hint at Potter being someone who maybe shouldn't be in control of powerful farming equipment. In the next episode, we're going to learn a whole lot more about the man who operated the tractor that took Sia's life. In that talk, which will be released shortly, Brandy will tell us about what may be the worst neighbor in Nova Scotia and the tractor he uses to intimidate her family. 
So he was on his property by the road and he was screaming at my sons. And he told my son that he was going to wait till we were all asleep, bring his backhoe over, knock our house down and kill us all. With that, I'm going to wrap this episode up. But before we part, let me give thanks. First, a big thanks to Eric for sharing a behind-the-scenes look at his family's tragedy with us. I can only hope that in him doing so, we'll put more advocates in Sia's corner. Next, a shout-out to LJ from Dystopian Simulation, who provides this series' intro and outro voiceovers, as well as Monty Data, who provides the score. But lastly, and most importantly, I have a massive thank you to everyone who listens to Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, this show would be as pointless as it would be impossible. And on the topic of support, let me thank the newest subscribers of the show's premium feed. Maria, Sandy, and Megan, thank you for going premium. For anyone else who'd like to support the show, you can access the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast, or you can give the show a pat on the back by simply sharing this episode on social media and letting like-minded friends know what we're doing here. If anyone out there has any story ideas, wants to give feedback on the show, or would like to share your opinion on Sia's case, you can do all that and more at nighttimepodcast.com. So until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Hi. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now, she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.